Today, I am particularly excited to introduce not just one, um, but three outstanding speakers um, as part of our panel presentation today. So briefly, we are joined by Dr. Elizabeth Stevens, who is Director of Diabetes Education and a practicing endocrinologist at PMG East, where she values her role as an educator and advocate for her patients. She earned her medical degree from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, completed residency at Oregon Health and Science University, and then fellowship in endocrinology at the University of Colorado. Dr. Stevens is married with two boys, enjoys singing in her free time, and rides her bike to work daily. We are also joined by Maureen Sprague, Providence Diabetes Education in Hood River. Maureen loves to work with people with diabetes and specifically to help clients overcome barriers to self-care. Having lived with diabetes for 26 years herself, she has learned compassion and understanding about the journey with diabetes, and she then shares that with her clients. She has been a diabetes educator for 16 years, is a certified trainer with some insulin pumps and glucose sensors, and is also certified in weight management. And finally, I would like to introduce Dr. Brianna Patasini from Providence Medical Group, Oregon Clinical Pharmacy Department. Dr. Patasini uh, did College of Pharmacy at University of Montana and then residency with Providence here in Portland. Her particular clinical interests include type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and diabetes technology. Thank you, all three of you, for joining us today. Well, thank you, uh, Laura, for that kind introduction. I know it's a mouthful with three of us. Um, and I've really been looking forward to it. And also thank you for letting us do this presentation in November, which is Diabetes Awareness Month, as you can see up here. Um, I've really been looking forward to doing this presentation um, uh, with my wonderful colleagues. Um, and what I wanted to start with is diabetes, in my mind, is a team sport. So if you live with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, and today we're going to be focusing on type 1, it tends to go better, in my experience, for people living with type 1 diabetes if you have a team. That team can have a variety of participants, family, friends, social media, Facebook, whatever, but people that can support and encourage you um, during the relentless kind of day-to-day -day challenges of living with type 1. And so I felt like this team-based approach also would be something that would be worth sharing with you as a part of this presentation. So um, I thought it would be great to hear from our diabetes team at PMG um, East Endocrinology as they all, as we all have like different perspectives that we add to kind of the care for the patients that we work with, with type one diabetes in particular. And I think our team is especially unique in that all three of us live with type one diabetes. So you can see here, interestingly, as I was putting this together, I didn't realize we were all kind of like within a couple of years of each other, but Brianna was diagnosed when she was 24 right when she was starting pharmacy school, as I recall, like day of. So that must have been sort of an interesting experience. I was diagnosed when I was in my third year of medical school, um, which was also kind of a thing, a bit of a challenge um, getting through the, my, my clinical time. And then Maureen was diagnosed when she was 26. Um, and so I think this combination of obviously our clinical skills and our own personal experience with type 1 diabetes really makes our ability to work with people who live with this chronic disease quite unique. Often people, we don't, you know, obviously share that from the get-go, um, although it can be useful in a lot of circumstances to kind of get past a few barriers if we can sort of 
tell people that we know where they're coming from. Um, but I do think it's really helpful to provide an empathetic kind of approach to managing what you'll see is a pretty rigorous and intensive disease to manage. And I will also just say that you'll hear about this as we go through the talk that it's really, I think type one diabetes is really unique in this way that um, there is a, a large population of people who care for um, individuals with type one diabetes who also live with it themselves. Um, people in uh, the medical field, of course, there's many of us in endocrinology who live with type one diabetes in the education field. Um, people who do blogs, podcasts, write books, who really are um, inspired to share their journey and also help people cope with the, the challenges of living with type one. So again, I think our team is really unique, but this is kind of a unique thing in the diabetes world as well. So um, I'm gonna be starting things off. Here are our objectives. So I'm gonna start off talking about um, some updated information about age of diagnosis. Um, there's a lot of myths around that, that people kind of remember that type one diabetes is, used to be called juvenile onset diabetes. We don't really call it that anymore. And as you can see from the three of us, we were not juveniles when we were diagnosed. So it's, it's really common for people to be older when they're diagnosed with type one. I'm also gonna talk about some misconceptions around race and type one diabetes and screening. Then Maureen's gonna jump in and talk about diabetes education with type one and how it differs from type two. And then finally, Brianne is gonna talk about insulin and technology and give you some updates around that and then we'll wrap up. So I wanted to start off because it's always fun to kind of start these sort of presentations with a case. So this is a case that the three of us worked with really recently, I think it was end of October, it was around Halloween. So this was a young woman, 27 year old African-American woman, no past medical history, she was really healthy but it had three months of weight loss. She's lost about 15 pounds and you know, she wasn't very, there wasn't very much of her to start with. So this was pretty dramatic weight loss, polyuria, polydipsia, kind of the classic signs and symptoms. And she had no healthcare. She didn't have a provider. She didn't have insurance. She was moving to Montana in two months and had plans to kind of establish with a new job and an insurance carrier there and get a, a primary care doctor. So she and her mom went to urgent care on a Friday afternoon um, and given her symptoms, the PA that saw her checked her blood sugar and it was 316, ordered an A1C, which didn't come back for a day or two. And so it came back at 15%. She was really kind of compensating for her hyperglycemia pretty well. There was no evidence of DKA on her labs. She really had no acute symptoms, no evidence of infection. And since it had, this had been kind of smoldering for a while, basically, the thought was that um, he told her what he thought the diagnosis was. He wasn't sure if it was type one or type two, but that she needed to see somebody and he placed an urgent referral over to our clinic. Of course, not realizing that we're booking two to three months out, but luckily we had a chance to review the referral and get her in, most importantly, to see Maureen to do diabetes education and talk with her about her diagnosis. So I thought this was a great case to sort of illustrate some of the points that I'm gonna talk about, because these are questions that she had when she came in to talk with me. So one was that her grandma had diabetes, but it really looked different. Um, presumably her grandmother had type two diabetes, she took pills. So she was just a little bit confused as to what was going on. And she definitely had this deer in the headlights kind of appearance when she came into clinic. So we we're trying to sort of um, provide information that she could actually hear. <laughs> it was a little hard, a uh, difficult conversation, but she was clearly quite freaked out about all, all of her symptoms. She also wanted to know what kind of diabetes that she had. Um, she hadn't gotten online yet, so didn't have a lot of knowledge, hadn't done a lot of research to understand her diagnosis, so didn't really know the differences between the two types of diabetes or the primary two types of diabetes. And then she wanted to know about what kind of uh, recommendations we would have for her family members and whether or not they should get screened. 
So, so I, I wanted to start off by talking about some of the mis or maybe misconceptions or some of the old ways that we portray type one diabetes. And I think for people who work primarily in the hospital, you may often see, um, unfortunately, many people who come into the hospital with type one diabetes are often, you know, uh, suffer from a lot of complications, have poor access to care, um, you know, just a lot of social um, structures that are not in good, a good place financially or any otherwise um, to take care of themselves with type 1 diabetes. And often when I go to meetings, these are some of the images that may be presented to talk historically about how type 1 diabetes. So insulin has been around for 100 years now. So there's often these pictures of kids pre and post the discovery of insulin, um, talking about the complications and all the ramifications of poor glucose control over time kind of the diabetes distress that's out there, anxiety, depression, that's more common in people living with chronic disease. The old diabetes back or insulin pump backpack, which, you know, it, this is a prototype of an insulin pump that was, you know, initially used. Obviously, we've come a long way since then. And then finally, meters and syringes and all this kind of older tools that we have used historically for type 1 diabetes. But I w wanted to encourage you to sort of rethink um, type 1 diabetes. Like I said, our community of people living with type 1 is full of people doing remarkable things despite the challenges of living with type 1. And so here I just wanted to tell you about a few of these people. So you've got the, in the corner over here, you've got the hotties uh, with type 1 diabetes. So Nick Jonas, who's uh, a huge advocate in the diabetes community um, on Beyond Type 1, who lives with type 1 and does a lot of promoting around Dexcom, which is a continuous glucose monitor. Lila Moss, who's a model, Kate Moss's daughter, who created quite a stir in the community when she walked out on the runway with her insulin pump on her thigh. Um, Will Cross, who's a really inspirational speaker, um, first uh, person with type 1 diabetes to summit Mount Everest. And he's got amazing stories of climbing all over the world and how he's managed like to keep his insulin from freezing and all this type of stuff. Really great stories. Halle Berry, of course. Um, Sonia Sotomayor, who's um, uh, justice. Um, Chris Dudley, who has done a huge amount of work for our diabetes community here in Portland, has a basketball camp um, that he runs and used to play for the Trailblazers back in the 90s. And then I love this gal, uh, Fiona, who lives out in Hood River. She is a water woman, which I didn't even know was a thing, but she's a professional um, stand-up paddleboarder, windsurfer, and um, uh, surfer um, who competes. And she's just, I mean, just, I think doing that with type 1 diabetes is like, that's a thing. But the way she does it, you can see she's got her sensor on her arm here. And we'll talk more about continuous glucose monitors, but she has her sensor over here. And then she wears this big pack that carries all of her diabetes supplies, her glucose, um, her insulin, all the things that she needs to kind of care for herself when she's out on the water, because that's a pretty vulnerable place to be. So there's a lot of cool stuff that's happening that you can read about. Most of the stuff is obviously published or online, but it's a pretty um, remarkable group of people who are out there doing remarkable things and living with type one. So to jump into some of the statistics around type 1 diabetes, it's still a pretty uncommon um, disease. About one and a half million people in the United States live with type 1 diabetes and about 64,000 people are diagnosed each year. Um, interestingly, it's fairly, um, despite the genetics that we know are present, and I'll talk more about that, about 93% of people, and it really ranges depending on what study you look at. This is information from the JDRF that pulled from CDC and a number of other sources, but their most recent information was 93%. I've seen 80%, um, but have no family history of type 1 diabetes. So it's much more common for people not to have someone in their family with type 1 
Often they have other autoimmune disorders um, in their family. The prevalence and incidence is increasing, as you can see here from the figure, estimated to be about one to two, or two to five percent per year increase. Um, and then on average, there's a significant amount of healthy life that is lost once you're diagnosed with type one diabetes. In my experience, that really ranges from people who've had access, not haven't had access to good care, who have a lot of quality life lost, a lot of expenses in the hospital a lot, compared with people who may have access to resources who are very engaged, who do quite well with living with their type one. But on average, I would imagine there are a number of years that are lost living with type one diabetes. And then finally, it's an expensive disorder and there's quite a bit of um, cost that's um, uh, affected by living with type one. I think it's interesting to explore why that we're seeing an increase um, in this uh, disorder in the world. So we know that type one diabetes, there's an interplay just like with all autoimmune disorder, there's a genetic predisposition and then there's some sort of immunologic kind of impact that causes the disease to occur. What triggers that immunology isn't really well understood, but this figure outlines just some of the ideas behind or the associations that have been seen in published studies. So infections are associated with kind of the development of type one diabetes and there's thoughts that these exposures to especially viruses is what stimulates the immunologic response that causes beta cell destruction. There's also associations with cow's milk and certain um, dietary exposures. Weight probably causes some stress on the beta cell, so that may increase your risk of developing type 1 diabetes. And then, of course, there's associations just like everything with vitamin D. Vitamin D seems to be the, uh, the cause for everything, um, breastfeeding, etc. So there's a variety of different um, probably exposures and environmental triggers that lead to the um, development of the antibodies that are associated in the inflammation that happens in the beta cell. But despite all this, it continues to be a pretty uncommon disorder, as I already mentioned. So if you have no family history, your risk of getting type 1 is about 0.4%. It increases about 10 to 15 fold if you have a family member with type 1 diabetes. And that's where most of the research has been is in family members with type 1, because again, it's so uncommon. It's more common in men or fathers with type 1 um, diabetes to um, have children with uh, type 1. And then for families where both parents have type 1, it's up to 30%. So definitely there are genes involved, but it's still pretty uncommon. And then I wanted to talk a little bit, there's been a ton of research um, done looking um, at children and, um, and then kind of uh, identifying family members and looking at risk for developing type 1 diabetes. So because of the um, uh, predominance of type 1 diabetes in kids, a lot of the research has been done in the pediatric literature. So this is just interesting, kind of a summary um, of a number of different trials that was published in JAMA back in 2013 um, by a group um, from Barbara Davis in uh, Colorado. And um, I just think it's really interesting because I think with this understanding about the immunology and the antibodies associated with type 1 diabetes, we've actually changed the way that we look at it. So now it's more of a staged disease rather than a kind of you have it or you don't. And I'll talk more about that in the next slide. But you can see here that as they've looked at family members of people who have type 1 diabetes, that these markers, these antibodies, as you have more of them, two or more, your risk of developing type 1 diabetes goes up exponentially so that for people who have two or three antibody markers that are listed over here, GAD being one of them, zinc transporter 8, 
your risk of type 1 diabetes is up to 85% at 15 years. So with this information, there's been a lot of interest in how do we identify these people so that we can predict um, when they have the onset of type 1. And this is a slide from an article um, that was published a few years back, which talks about how we now think about type 1 diabetes as more of a progressive disease, which is totally different than we used to think about it. So um, this figure identifies the genetic risk that we know about. If you have a family member with type 1 diabetes, your risk is about 10 to 15 folds greater. There's some sort of immune activation and immune response that leads to damage of the beta cells. And then you have the staging of type 1 diabetes where people develop these autoantibodies that you can measure in the blood and that's being followed in uh, different places like TrialNet that I'll talk about. So once you have more than two antibodies, um, often these folks are followed looking at their glucose levels. Um, ultimately, as they start to develop abnormal glucose levels and then more overt hyperglycemia, you have the different stages of diabetes. And Brianna is going to talk a little bit about medications that are now being looked at and just FDA, one was just recently FDA approved that will be um, used for people in stage two um, type one diabetes to potentially, potentially slow uh, the progression to overt type one. So this I think is really interesting um, and it kind of changes the way I've been thinking about looking at family members uh, um, who have uh, type one diabetes in their history. So adult onset type one is a bit of a different animal. Um, so there's pediatric type one diabetes, but the, the majority of cases actually of type one are actually seen in adults. So 50% upwards, probably closer to 60 or 65% of new onset type one diabetes is actually seen in people over the age of 20. And that's really important to keep in mind. Again, again going against that myth that type one is a childhood disease. Um, we in our clinic see a lot of people who've either been misdiagnosed or have late onset type 1, and it's really important to treat them appropriately. Um, I'm happy to talk about LADA. LADA is latent, auto, uh, latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood. Um, it's often broken out as, it's a mouthful, but it's often broken out as kind of a subcategory of adult onset type 1 diabetes. Um, I kind of think of it more as a late onset type 1 because they're essentially people who may look like people with type 2 diabetes have antibodies and end up needing insulin sooner. So that kind of looks like type 1 diabetes to me. Um, but some people really like to have it in a separate category. So I, I don't know. I just sort of think of it more as a more as just as a, a variant of type 1. Um, with adults with type 1 diabetes, um, they tend to have more gradual onset of hyperglycemia. So they present a little bit differently than kids. Kids tend to get sick pretty quickly, go into DKA. Adults tend to smolder. Um, and there's probably a difference in the immune process that's happening there. Um, like I said, misdiagnosis tends to happen um, more frequently in adults with type 1. Up to 40% of people are misdiagnosed. And again, that makes sense. Type 2 diabetes is so common. You see an adult come in with higher blood sugars, you're going to assume. But again, keeping an open mind is important. Um, we do tend to recommend antibody screening for people if there's a question, and often the residents have questions for me about the uh, when people are in the hospital with kind of a weird presentation of diabetes um, in adulthood. We usually start with GAD antibodies. Some people recommend doing a more of a antibody panel to really um, uh, get a clear idea because um, there is variable um, antibody prevalence um, in uh, the type 1 presentation, but GAD tends to be the one that's most common in adults with type 1. 
And then I think this is also something to consider that um, other autoimmunity we see more commonly in adult onset type 1 diabetes. So really screening for thyroid disease is probably more important. We see it a lot more in, um, in adults compared to kids. And then um, another uh, uh, topic that was brought up with this case presentation was just racial differences and disparities. And, you know, I don't treat kids. I'm an adult endocrinologist, but I thought this information was really important, again, to identify biases um, and ways to really, again, keep an open mind as we're seeing people. So um, as you can see from the figure here, type 1 diabetes in Black and Hispanic youth is not rare. It's a lot more common than I think we may give than we may think of. So, um, and this was just some uh, information that I pulled as I prepared for this talk to talk about just how uh, young people present um, initially. So African-American children are much more likely to present in DKA. And I'll talk more about that, um, about how presenting in DKA is just much more of a high risk presentation just because the kids can be so acutely ill. Um, and they tend to have, when they present, um, more severe hyperglycemia, need higher insulin doses, and often have more issues with hypoglycemia over the course of their illness. They tend to be offered um, technology less frequently, which is, an, which is a bias that I think all of us need to kind of consider. And then all of these issues really do lead to challenges in terms of outcomes. So less, um, less technology, less control, um, often leads to more complications and problems with diabetes management. Um, so again, just something to consider when you're seeing people um, at different races with uh, diabetes. So finally, and then I'll turn it over to Maureen, um, screening. Again, I, I think, um, you know, my thought process around screening has really evolved, uh, especially over the last few years. So, you know, I have two kids and, uh, you know, when they were born, you know, 15, 17 years ago, I, I thought a lot about getting my kids screened for antibodies for type 1 diabetes. Um, and I, my, my, the reason why I didn't was because what are we going to do with that information? So at that point, I really had this bias that, you know, I would worry, I would think about, and I, I had met this woman at a meeting once who just talked about her anxiety after knowing that her kids had positive antibodies. And I think there's data that actually does show that the first year after kids are identified with having antibodies, there is a real uptick in, in anxiety in parents. And that makes sense. But now I think what we know is that there are resources like TrialNet where you can get information. And as we'll learn, now there are interventions and things that we can do that may help those kids um, who are at high risk for developing type one. So that's really, that landscape has really changed. This data was also really interesting from DAISY and the baby diab trials, which really showed that identifying these kids with antibodies actually led them to have fewer hospitalizations, less DKA, and kind of just better management from the get-go. So again, I think that's a reason why for the patient that we talked about, I would recommend that you get her brother screened um, potentially through an organization like TrialNet, where they'll do it for uh, low cost or for free. Um, so uh, I just think this this has really changed over the last few years. And now Maureen's going to come up and talk to you about mealtime insulin management. Thank you. And I am will focus mainly on um, insulin management because it is quite different from type 2 diabetes. And we want to look at some of the complexities that come with trying to manage insulin with type 1. And I want to start by just reviewing some recommendations that came out in a consensus report for the management of type 1 diabetes in adults. 
And this release was released by the American Diabetes Association and the Europe European Association for the Study of Diabetes. And in this report, they recommend that the goals of nutrition therapy be to promote healthy eating patterns. And notice it says patterns and not pattern, because there's multiple ways to approach this. And that these patterns, though, emphasize a variety of foods to not only improve overall health, but to improve those parameters that we look at for type 1 diabetes, including A1C, blood pressure, uh, blood pressure cholesterol, and maintaining a healthy weight. They also emphasize the importance of individualizing these eating plans to take into consideration personal preference, cultural preference, health literacy, and also so socioeconomic status. And then they also recommended the importance of focusing on matching insulin doses with meal composition through advanced carbohydrate counting. That's really kind of the gold standard that we want to move towards is if we can get people with type 1 diabetes to be able to carb count, uh, that can make a big difference. So when we look at eating plan approaches, they do vary from simple to complex. And often I go through each one of these stages with someone that's newly diagnosed with diabetes and they all, um, they play a role and some people don't advance, they stay with the, the simpler and that's fine. Um, but we definitely want to uh, assess clients and see where they're at with their level of understanding. So the plate method, most of you have probably seen this, it's been around for a while. And this is an excellent overall general tool for visualizing healthy eating. And it's also a great resource to use for people without diabetes because it, it looks at balance eating approaches. However, for people with type one, this is challenging to figure out insulin dosing based on this. I've, I've made it work when I've had to, but it's a challenge. The next level of complexity is carb awareness. And this is where we just teach what groups of foods do we need to worry about as far as raising blood sugar and what groups of foods don't have as big an impact on blood sugar. And I find this is an important concept to get across because once people find out that carbohydrate affects their blood sugar, they're looking everything up. They're looking fats up, they're looking proteins up. This leads to frustration and this leads to burnout. So I think this is still an important concept at any stage of diagnosis to go through what foods are important to take into consideration that uh, will likely affect your blood sugar or that you need to take insulin for. And then carb counting, this ne next level of complexity, has a lot of benefits and tools. So it really helps to reduce that postprandial glycemic excursions that we see, either hypo or hyper. Uh, when patients are able to utilize carb counting, they have less frustration. It gives them more confidence in learning how to dose their insulin and how to control their diabetes. And also it provides a lot more flexibility in meal choices and serving sizes. So you can imagine we just got through Thanksgiving, right? So somebody with diabetes, if they feel like they're stuck in a set meal plan, they have a hard time enjoying themselves or their blood sugars go completely wacky, which that's, that's going to happen. Uh, with some of these celebrations, but we want to give them the tools to be able to have the least amount of excursions as possible. And I just provided a really brief list of some carb counting resources. Lots of apps available, especially in our keto-focused world these days. You can imagine there's a lot of carb counting apps, websites, handouts, and books. You can find these on Amazon. You can find them at places like American Diabetes Association, 
or if somebody comes in for diabetes education, we have specific handouts that we provide them. So there's a couple different ways to use carb counting. We can either try to keep the carbohydrate per meal consistent to match up with the set insulin dose. I see a lot of people come in with set insulin doses. It's easy, it's five units three times a day, 10 units three times a day. The challenge is if their carbohydrate intake varies, but their insulin dose is the same meal to meal, we're gonna have blood sugars all over the place. But if somebody does come in on this, I try to encourage them to try to stick to a certain amount of carbs per meal. So for somebody that's interested in weight loss, 30 grams per meal, which is considered low carb, is a way to go. Or for more active people, we look at higher amounts of carbohydrate. But as you can imagine, this is really, really hard to do. Who eats the same amount of carbohydrate from meal to meal? Nobody, so it's not ideal. So we really wanna work people towards being able to calculate insulin to carb ratio so that we can match the insulin with the amount of carbohydrate that they're eating. And we have set uh, formulas for doing this. So the ultimate is we wanna work people with type one uh, towards having an insulin to carb ratio. So a good place to start is what's called the 450 rule. And this is a, a um, standard number, 450, which was through research, but also when I looked at references for this, they said it's just clinical experience. So this has been being built over the years and the number's changing, it was 500, 450. So, but for now we're using 450. You wanna divide that by total daily dose so that is the total of both short and long acting insulin. And this gives us an initial insulin to carb ratio to start somebody with. It may be one to 10, one to 15. If somebody is newly diagnosed or really sensitive, it's gonna be closer to one to 30. And then it's important to note that these insulin to carb ratios will vary throughout the day. Most people with type one are more insulin resistant in the morning. So we're gonna have a more aggressive insulin to carb ratio. We're then gonna use CGM data or blood glucose testing to really fine tune this. Uh, Cause again, it's just a starting point. And everybody with diabetes is type one diabetes is individual. So some of them break the rules as far as insulin management go. So that's an important piece to keep in mind. And then when we have somebody do an insulin to carb ratio, we also have them add in an insulin correction factor. And you can almost think of this as a sliding scale, but I, we don't like to use the term sliding scale anymore uh, because this is more of the amount of insulin to drop someone's blood sugar so many points to a target. Again, we have the 1700 rule for this particular calculation. We divide that by total daily dose. This gives us um, and we drop it to a target. So for some people it's 180, some people 120, 150. It just kind of depends on where they are in their management. And we'll get how many points one unit of insulin will drop blood sugar. This will also vary per time of day. It's common to have one unit to 40 to 50. Again, newly diagnosed, they're gonna have one unit to drop them 100 points. And some of it is just out of safety. We don't know some, someone that's naive to insulin, we don't know how they're going to respond, so we don't want to tank them and send them really low. We will use ins we will use CGM data and blood glucose data to fine tune this. So to get a final dose per meal, we add these two together. And we'll often develop a table for this correction factor so they actually don't have to calculate. It'll just say if your blood sugar is 150 to 200 at one unit, 
201 to 250 at two units just to kind of ease the burden of the math. But Brianna will show you some tools that we have for um, helping people with calculations. And there are calculators that are out there. So that's kind of the, the book work, but the fine tuning or the art of managing insulin with uh, type 1 diabetes, we have to consider some of these other factors. So the type of carbohydrate somebody is eating makes a big difference. Uh, simple carbohydrates, cornflakes, uh, white bread, these are absorbed very quickly. They raise blood sugar very fast. Um, and even though we usually encourage people to dose their insulin 10 to 15 minutes before a meal, regardless of the meal, if you have some of these foods on board, then, on board, then we're going to probably ask them to dose a little earlier. So the higher fiber foods, they actually slow digestion, they slow the rise of blood sugar. So it allows for a better matching of insulin to the food absorption or the carbohydrate absorption. So the higher the fiber, the better is what I say. We don't necessarily have to count the fiber grams, but we just want more whole foods. Glycemic index and glycemic load can be helpful, but I don't usually go here until I feel somebody has a good grasp of insulin to carb ratio, but some people are hungry for this information. So then high fat and high protein foods also have a big impact and this is often missed. But if you talk to anybody with type one diabetes, they're gonna tell you they understand the pizza effect on blood, glu blood glucose. And this is because high fat slows down um, the release of carbohydrate from the stomach and it slows the rise of blood sugar. Protein has a delayed rise in glucose and some of that is hormone based. But what can happen is this mismatch of when the insulin peaks versus when the carbohydrate is absorbed. So the insulin peaks at about one and a half hours, but the carbohydrate's not fully absorbed. Sometimes people will go low and then they end up low right after the meal, and then they end up high for two to three hours after the meal. So we actually have some dosing strategies to help deal with this. So the research shows that total insulin at a high fat or high protein meal actually needs to be increased from that estimate of an insulin to carb ratio. And this can vary per person anywhere from 20 to actually 150% was what was reported in the literature. I of course start people at 20% because we wanna be safe and we can always then adjust from there. The strategy is to give 50% of that dose at the beginning of the meal and then 50% one to one and a half hours later. And that better matches up with that late rise of glucose caused by the fat or the high protein. We then use CGM or blood glucose data to adjust not only the amount of insulin to give at the beginning of the meal, but what is the percentage split? Do we do a 40-60 split? Do we do a 30-70 or is it 70-30? This is the art piece. This, art piece. this is where we wanna be collecting data to really fine tune this. And I've seen this work really well for a lot of people, just starting off with this 50-50 split and increasing by 20%. People see the difference, they get excited about it, they feel they can eat pizza again. Uh, and if someone is on an insulin pump, then they have an, the, um, the feature of either a dual wave or an extended wave bolus. And this is an uh, option on the pump where you can tell the pump to give me so much of the insulin now, a certain percentage, and then spread the rest of the dose over two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, depending on which system that you have. So I wanna bring our case study in to kind of bring this point home. So again, a newly diagnosed type one, she started on basal insulin 10 units at the meal, added in rapid acting two to three units per meal, a set dose, no correction factor. 
you can see there's wide variations in her blood sugar. It's all over, even fasting blood sugar. We've got wide variations. She was frustrated. She was hungry to be more aggressive. So we started her off on an insulin to carb ratio, and we actually started her off at one to 30, looking at the calculations that I showed you, but that wasn't working well for her. So we dropped it to one to 15, provided an insulin correction factor of one to 100 uh, to drop her to 180. And you notice the blood sugars got a little better. We have less variations. Then we used that data to fine tune, and we ended up dropping her insulin to carb ratio to one to 10 and her correction factor one to drop her 80 points to a target of 150. And the one to 10 is really unusual for someone with type one, but again, everyone's individual. So we have to work with that. And you notice most of her blood sugars fell under 150. So it was a, this is a perfect example of how this level of um, insulin management can make a really big difference. So I have two more slides, but I wanna make sure Brianna has enough time. And I don't know if, hopefully everybody has access to the slides, but this talks about keto diet um, with use with type one diabetes. So, uh, and if we have time at the end, I'll come back to this, but Brianna? All right. So I'm gonna finish up talking about some other elements of medications in type 1 diabetes, as well as technology. So starting off with basal insulins, as Maureen nicely covered all of the bolus insulin information, important to know that there's many basal insulins out there. Most of them are very similar. So I just wanted to point out two that I think are a little bit different. So levomir or insulin detomir has a dose-dependent duration of action. So in patients that are very insulin sensitive, so require very low doses, the duration of action of levomir is much less than 24 hours, so typically need twice daily dosing in these patients. And then the other one is on the other end of the spectrum, Traceba, which is an ultra-long-acting insulin, a 42-hour duration of action. So it's important with this one to wait at least three to four days between adjustments because that takes that long to get to steady state, and to also think about it when you're needing to switch off or change this dose. So periprocedurally, if you're wanting to reduce this dose, Traceba, you've got to think about it at least 48 hours in advance to actually have the impact at the time of the procedure when you want it. Um, and then if you are switching to or from other basal insulins, such as coming into the hospital, switching to formulary insulin glargine, you've got to account for still having Traceba effect on board that first day. So think about doing something more like 50% of the dose of insulin glargine day one, and then day two can actually go to the full dose of insulin glargine. So just some interesting things to think about with these ones, and it's going to probably get more complicated as in development is once weekly insulin. So insulin Icodec and BIF insulin are coming, um, and we will see how that really affects how we need to think about these sorts of things. The other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was dosing of the basal insulin. So really what you're trying to do with basal insulin is just have a steady effect on glucose. And you can see in that top CGM profile, during the overnight hours, it's really very stable. That's what you're looking for. This patient's having stable basal and overnight pattern, but significant prandial elevation. And if you attempt to lower the prandial elevation by increasing the basal, then you're going to over-basalize them, which puts them at risk of fasting hypoglycemia. So you can see the other ones kind of in the middle with the CGMs, a very steep drop overnight that is leading to hypoglycemia in the one patient on the far left. Um, 
You can look at this anytime that the patient is fasting to really see it most easily, whether you're using CGM or even if you're doing finger stick monitoring to be able to tell of does the basal dose need to actually be decreased. Um, and sources vary on this. Generally, you want the change in glucose while fasting to be less than 30 to 50 milligrams per deciliter. If it's more than that, then the basal dose needs to be adjusted. Um, and you can see at the bottom one where the basal is actually trending up. So that would be a time that you would think about increasing the dose of the basal insulin. And then this is the new medication that Dr. Stevens referred to, so teplizumab, just approved on November 17th, so not even two weeks ago. Um, it's a first-in-class therapy. It's an anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody given by IV daily for 14 days approved for patients eight years of age or older with stage two type one diabetes. So positive antibodies, but not in fulminant um, dysglycemia. There was a median two year delay of onset of clinical type one diabetes in these trials. So 60 months with teplizumab versus 27 months with placebo. And now I'd like to move on and talk about some diabetes technology. So starting us off with continuous glucose monitors, and I'm going to walk kind of through what all of these different devices are. So starting in the upper left is the Medtronic Guardian Connect sensor. This one lasts for seven days, requires calibration. It's used most commonly in tandem with other Medtronic devices. Um, and then the common ones are our next three. So the Freestyle Libre 2 and the Freestyle Libre 3. The Freestyle Libre 2 is intermittently scanned continuous glucose monitor, so must be scanned at least every eight hours to get the full amount of data it does provide real-time alerts. Versus the Libre 3 is a much smaller device. So that little sensor is about the size of two stacked pennies um, and it provides continuous data. So it's reading out to the Libre 3 phone app without having to remember to scan, still providing real-time alerts. And then coming down to the bottom, the Dexcom G6 is our current version of Dexcom. Um, it comes with a sensor as well as a transmitter. The sensor lasts for 10 days and it works with many different systems. So it works with the receiver and the phone and the smartwatch you see there, but also with many of the integrated pumps um, and insulin pens that I'll talk about next. The one in the bottom middle is the Dexcom G7. This is not currently on the market, but the next iteration we're expecting to come, which will be nice to have a smaller and um, not having two components, which will be good for patients. Um, and then the last one is the Eversense Sensionix. So that is an implantable CGM. And the small little device you see in there is implanted it, and then the black transmitter device is placed over the top of the skin to be able to read out. I honestly have not seen very many people on the Eversense at this point. But I think it's important to, to kind of see where does this fall into to therapy? And this really is the standard of care. So CGM is strongly recommended for all persons with diabetes that are on intensive insulin therapy for both ADA and AACE guidelines. So every patient with type one diabetes should be offered CGM. And looking at the prevalence of it, you can see on this type one diabetes exchange collaborative data that it went from 59% in 2016 to 72% of patients living with type one diabetes using a CGM. And uh, breaking the data down a little bit further, there was a study looking at eight of the clinics that are part of that collaborative, um, and they estimated in that population that it was around 48%. But what I found interesting about their data is they really talked about the disparities. 
Um, so 50% of non-Hispanic whites in this population had CGM, but only 18% of non-Hispanic blacks and 38% of Hispanics. And what they found is that these patients may have had the same access, but they were not offered to all of the patients. So making sure that it is something that's standard for all patients with type 1 diabetes. And they saw important outcomes. So DKA and severe hypoglycemia was significantly higher in those patients not using CGM. And the median A1C was also higher in those patients. And this graphic shows you that across the age span, that remains true. So A1C is lower in patients using CGM than in those not using CGM. And last about CGMs is really thinking about how do you choose? And Insurance definitely plays a role, uh, patient preference as well. But the other things to think about is if you are using any other pieces of diabetes technology, does the CGM pair with that? Or do they have the compatibility to use the app on their phone? These are all things that can really guide you towards choosing a specific CGM. Cost can be a big factor. Freestyle Libre is significantly lower cost than the Dexcom G6. So, so in some patients, that's going to be the better option. Um, complexity of the device, and that really depends on the patient of what complexity makes the most difference. So the Libre 2 requiring frequent scanning, somebody that's already having difficulty with adherence, that's also probably going to be impacted versus the Dexcom G6 that has all these different components and having to put it all together. For other patients, that may be the thing that's more complex. Um, and then for us, really, are we able to even see that data, be able to adjust anything based on it? Um, so if they can use it, but they can't actually share that data with you, it's helpful for them in day-to-day -day management, but you're not really able to use it. And then moving us on to insulin delivery devices. So insulin pumps, smart insulin pens, and at the bottom is kind of the insulin patch pumps that are not necessarily smart. Um, so they, these ones do not have any side of outside controller and they're more in set daily doses. The InPen or Smart Insulin Pen works with an app. Um, it functions like a normal insulin pen, but does allow for half unit dosing, uses cartridges of insulin. Um, and so you have to look for the insulins that have those specific cartridges and it can pair with a CGM. People that I think about this for is somebody that maybe needs or wants help with insulin dose tracking or dose calculation as the app can have things like carb ratios, can have relative doses, correction factors that the patient's able to input and the app does the math for them. Um, and it also reduces in risk of insulin stacking as with that tracking, it tracks the active insulin time and can predict if they're going to stack it, if there's still insulin around. Um, another important thing for many people is just reducing that risk of an accidental duplicate or misdose because they can look back and see, did I take this dose? Uh, and lastly is, is you can have alert, alerts and reminders in here to really help with adherence to what's a pretty complex regimen. And then lastly is our insulin pumps. So people, things to think about with if an insulin pump is appropriate. One is coverage and affordability. Um, insulin pumps are not low cost, so it's not appropriate for all patients. Insulin requirements and pump reservoir limits, most of these pumps take 200 to 300 units, so depending on how much insulin your patient is using, the reservoir may be too small and they have to change out much more frequently than the 72 hours, which is normal, 
or in somebody that's really insulin sensitive, that it may be wasting a lot of insulin. So like the Omnipod requires 85 units to start it. If you're only using 10 units a day, that means you're wasting quite a bit of insulin when it expires at 72 hours. Um, they need to be able to safely manage the device and they need to be monitoring glucose very frequently. An insulin pump is a very intensive insulin management device. And so it requires sometimes more effort than with um, insulin pens. Most insulin pumps are gonna use carb ratio, correction factor, and calculate doses. Um, they're going to be delivering basal at a continuous rate and bolus, but both using only rapid acting insulin. And I put this in here because I think that it's helpful when you're ordering these insulins to know what dose to even shoot for. You need to use the total daily dose, but add extra. I typically recommend 10 to 15 units above their average total daily dose for a max daily. Um, so they're getting an appropriate amount of insulin. And then the last point, not all rapid acting insulins are approved for use in every pump. And this can be important because use of a non-approved insulin can invalidate the warranty of this very expensive piece of equipment. And then general categories of insulin pumps. I talked about the ones that you saw at the bottom, those patch pumps, the Vigo and the Secure Simplicity. And then the Omnipod Dash is also one of these tubeless insulin delivery systems. These are all non-integrated pumps, meaning they don't work with the CGM to be able to adjust. It's only using what the user is, has the settings and inputs for delivery versus sensor integrated pumps, which is our kind of next generation. These are using the pump and the CGM together with an algorithm to be able to adjust the pump and how it's delivering. There's kind of two different methods. The older one was the low glucose suspend or predictive low glucose suspend. These turned off insulin when the, the glucose was predicted to go low versus the automated insulin delivery or hybrid closed loop. These are able to increase insulin. Some of them can give auto correction boluses if the glucose is going too high and also is able to decrease the insulin and turn it off if the glucose is going too low. And with that, I will turn it back to whichever one of you wants to go next. <laughs> So aren't they amazing? Like there's no way I would be able to do all of that. I feel so grateful to have these guys on my team. Um, so I'm just, I've got two slides to wrap up and then we're happy to take questions. We'll hopefully have a few minutes for that. So the future of type one diabetes, I've just listed here just some of the exciting things that are happening. Brianna touched on technology. There's so much amazing work that's being done with technology related to type one diabetes, insulin pumps that are integrated with sensors. Um, bi-hormonal pumps that infuse both glucagon and insulin, um, pumps that will more automatically deliver insulin so people don't need to be as engaged in their diabetes management because as you can have heard, it's quite complicated. Cell therapy, which are basically stem cell-derived um, therapies, and I would just recommend this movie, The Human Trial. Um, it just came out recently, um, uh, produced by a person who lives with type 1 diabetes, Lisa, uh, Lisa Hepner, who talks about um, the viacite uh, trials with infusions of stem cells that are differentiated into insulin producing cells. Um, kind of it describes her own journey with diabetes, but also these two people who participate at the University of Minnesota. It's a really interesting just to understand how a human trial is conducted and also just the experience these people had. Finally, disease modifying therapy, drugs like verapamil have been shown to slow kind of the inflammatory response that uh, leads to uh, insulin insufficiency. And then as Brianna mentioned, the um, prevention with uh, teplizumab. 
teplizumab that's now available and hopefully we'll be starting to use it um, for people who are early on um, in terms of stage two. And then finally, I just wanted to call out again, I mentioned that um, you know our diabetes community is quite robust. And if you see people or take care of people with type 1 diabetes, I would really encourage them to, you know, as much as we try to keep people away from the internet as they're researching their diseases, this is a place where there's a lot of really helpful information if you know where to send people. So here are just some, uh, some places. I don't know if you can see my, anyway, but um, here we go. So, um, uh, the DIY project was actually um, initiated by people living with type 1 diabetes who developed algorithms to have sensors and pumps talk to each other, non-FDA approved, so there's some kind of concerns around that. But it's actually uh, called looping, and people do use it to have integrated systems that work quite well for people. Diabetes Training Camp is a program on the East Coast that's run by Matt Corcoran, an endocrinologist for people who are athletic with type 1 diabetes. Super fun camp to go to. Uh, oops. Um, uh, Ed Gamble is a hilarious comedian who lives with type 1 and has a lot of funny podcasts um, and YouTube videos. Um, there is the TCOID group, two endocrinologists in San Diego who do amazing podcasts around all these really practical topics related to type 1 diabetes. They're kind of quirky and funny. Steve Edelman is one of them. Um, and that's worth a view. And then Mark Heyman, who's a psychologist who lives with type 1, has a podcast that's amazing for burnout, depression, coping. I really would encourage you to look at that. T1D International advocates for insulin costs internationally because insulin is prohibitively expensive for so many people. And then finally, there's podcasts galore if you're interested. I actually just started one called Embracing Diabetes that I like, but Beta Cell is another really good one that talks about lots of issues related to type 1 diabetes. And then down here in the corner is just a picture of um, my co-presenters. We went to a diabetes meeting last summer um, uh, in Keystone, Colorado. And the coolest thing beyond just spending time with these guys um, was that uh, at this meeting, which was probably what, like six, 800 people, it's probably 40 to 50% of the attendees live with type one diabetes. So all healthcare providers. And in this picture, obviously you can see Maureen and Brianna and then my girlfriend, Terry, who's an educator in Hawaii. And then another friend who's a, works for pharma, but all of us live with type one diabetes. So it's a very cool community. So finally, I'll just end and happy to take questions in these last few minutes. This is a, a gal who lives down in Australia who does comics um, around living with type 1 diabetes, and you guys can read at your leisure, but um, they're just some funny, um, she's got like, I think, eight or ten of them that talk about um, ways to torture people living with type 1 diabetes, and um, one, number five, is um, talking about the diabetes police who are well-meaning people who ask you questions like, should you be eating that? Or um, are you sure you can eat that? I don't know if any of you have ever said that to somebody, but don't do that to someone. <laughs> it's like really, really annoying. And then uh, the last cartoon, number six, is um, uh, one of the comics is about uh, how it's better not to be a medical professional who doesn't know anything about diabetes technology. And this guy's saying things like, wow, that little box is an insulin pump. That's amazing. And that little disc does so much on your arm. Anyway, so. That's it. I'm happy to take any questions. And Maureen and Brianna, if you guys want to come up too. Well, thank you for this excellent presentation and just a wealth of information that I think we are all going to take some time to process. Uh, we'll work to share your slides because of all these great resources. Um, while I'm waiting for likely questions in the room, um, one comment that and question that came through online 
Um, notes, potential concerns regarding weight stigma and risk of weight cycling and eating disorders. Um, many people fear risking weight gain with use of insulin. And there's even a term called um, diabolemia, where someone reduces insulin to lose weight. Um, how do we avoid harm when sending the message, keep a healthy weight, when we know weight gain can be a side effect of a life-saving treatment for type 1 diabetes? So my general approach is actually not to focus on weight, but to look at healthy eating in general, uh, regardless of size, and then also focusing on um, what are the goals? So if somebody has blood sugar goals that we want to, you know, they want better control, I tend to focus on that. A side effect of that is healthy weight. So that's how I try to avoid the stigma. If somebody actually voices some of these behaviors, then we definitely address it. So if we have some restriction or uh, reducing insulin, then we talk about certainly um, the complications, but also maybe about getting some counseling around that because we're not going to be able to move forward if they're not able to move beyond some of the uh, weight stigma issues. And I would also just add that there's um, this is a really common issue um, in the diabetes community and especially uh, in younger people, young women. But I see lots of people who struggle with it because the weight gain can be so profound, especially after diagnosis. So I would say there are definitely there are a lot of resources out there, specifically mental health people who have training in in type one diabetes and um, uh, eating disorders. Um, and then for weight related issues, one of the interesting things that we're doing more of, not for people obviously who are restricting and have other bigger fish to fry, um, but using GLP-1s. They haven't technically been studied, or I mean, they haven't been approved for use. They've been studied in type one diabetes and they can be a really helpful tool. Cause just like everybody, people with type one diabetes have weight issues too. So um, I think uh, offering those to people if they can get them covered can be really helpful. Thank you so much. I'll turn to see if we have any questions live here in the room. Uh, this is amazing. So I have two questions. Um, one is, do you know if the T1 International, is anybody looking at heat stable insulins? Uh, since I volunteer in Africa and that is one of the big issues is that without refrigeration, um, there's, there's a lot of issues around preserving the insulin. I know that there's a lot of research going into the different kind of making glucagon heat stable, so I would assume they've also looked at insulin, but I'm not aware of any actual trials. Thanks. And then my um, second question is really more about um, type 2, which is most of what we see in the hospital. Can you recommend a good reference for understanding over basalization? Because um, I think that we, you know, like, I was just telling Abby, it is so normal for us to see a drop between bedtime and the morning of like at least 100. Um, and it always infuriates me that everybody is taught to cut the basal insulin 50% when they come in the hospital. And I'm like, whether they eat or not, it shouldn't make a difference if their basal is appropriate. Um, but and I would do. say that's the main reason why periprocedurally insulin doses are cut is because they're often too high on the outpatient side. So the reference here at the bottom, this clinical diabetes is from the ADA and it's about overbasalization. It's actually coming from type 2 diabetes is where it there was not a lot of literature about it in type 1, but it is obviously a problem in both. Um, so ADA has several papers about overbasalization. 
Great, many thanks. Well, I will acknowledge that we are right at the top of the hour, nine o'clock. Thank you to our speakers.